Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loya, your host. From time to time in our program, we present to you what is really the heart of this whole program, the message of this program, its mission. And that is something that I have come to refer to as the 10 gifts of the Eastern churches. From time to time, we have to dust that off and review it and keep it before our eyes. And we maybe tweak it a little bit over time, but it's one of our standards here at the Light of the East and something we need to hear about from time to time. When I say the 10 gifts of the Eastern Churches, I don't mean that the Eastern Churches only have 10 things to offer, but there are 10 things that I pull out of that vast reservoir that we know as Eastern Christian spirituality. Both churches, East and West, both lungs of the church, East and West, have their own respective gifts. That's also part of the mission of this program, to highlight the mutual gifts of each other, East and West, but in particular, the gifts of the Eastern Churches. So, gift number one. And this is something that we need, especially as Americans, because America, because we're a big country, big hearts, we do things in a big way, we have a tendency to look at things in such a way where bigger almost automatically seems better. But if something is bigger, it must be the real thing or better. And that is not necessarily true. Think of a computer chip. How small is a computer chip? How small is a computer chip that runs so many things today, even big machines or cars? How big is a little kidney stone that can take a man the size of a football player down in pain? So little things can be very effective things. Sometimes little things can even be the best things, but not always. So the Eastern churches, because and precisely because we are small, much smaller in number and size than the Latin Rite Church, especially in the Western world. Because of that, just by that alone, we witness the fact that bigger is not always better or the only way. That the Eastern churches, although much, much more sparse in population in the Western countries and much, much smaller than the Latin Rite, nonetheless, they are just as important and they are of equal dignity 
as many documents and many papal statements have reminded us, the two lungs of the church have equal dignity. One may be larger, one may be smaller in certain areas, but they both have equal dignity. So the first gift, just by the mere size, or maybe I should say lack of size of the Eastern churches, is a witness to itself that bigger is not always better. And something can be of equal dignity and value, even if it seems to be much smaller. The second gift is the influence that the Eastern Catholic churches had at the Second Vatican Council, which influenced many of the legitimate developments in the Latin Rite Church since the Second Vatican Council. Some of those developments are the greater sense of collegiality in ecclesiology, the enculturation of the gospel, in other words, bringing the gospel to different cultures and respecting the expressions and styles and music of those cultures, worship in the vernacular, you know, the language of the people, greater lay participation in the liturgy, parish councils, the restoration and significance of the diaconate, Holy Communion in both species, baptism by total immersion, and restoring the sequence of baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist. These are just some of the things from the Eastern churches that help to influence the development of things in the Western church, and that's usually how it works. Let's face it, things began in the East. Christianity began in what we call the Middle Eastern part of the world. And from there, it went to all corners of the world. So whenever we want to have legitimate theological development, we always go back to our touchstone, to the home, to the East, and we start from there, to its ancient liturgies, its ancient churches, its ancient texts, its ancient customs. It doesn't mean the East is superior to the West. It just simply means it's the origin. It's where it all came from, and that's the touchstone, sort of the home base. So the Eastern churches very much influenced legitimate developments in the Western church in the Second Vatican Council. The third gift is what I call the sense of the transcendence of God. Our starting point in the Eastern spirituality is that utter transcendence of God, his otherness, his authority, his ability to be unexplainable, Even though we can't explain certain things about God, he remains still beyond all categories, beyond all words, beyond all attempts to adequately explain or comprehend. And yet we have this great intimacy of knowing God in relationship. So the sense of the transcendence, something that is missing today in a lot of the world, many parts of the world today, we have a tendency to be what I call rather arrogant because we don't want to bow or acquiesce, to defer to something greater than ourselves. Yet we need that. It's a human need that God has put into us so that we come to know him as he truly is. So the sense of transcendence is the third gift of the Eastern churches. A fourth gift is a sense of mystery. G.K. Chesterton, the great and one of my favorite writers and thinkers of the late 19th and early 20th century, made the statement in his book, Orthodoxy, that mysticism will keep men sane. He did a lot about the mystical, and by the mystical we mean that which is most real, something revealed and something hidden all at the same time. Hidden not to irritate us, hidden meaning because it's so beyond us, it's so great we know it, but yet it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend, to put into any category or box or description. Think of love, for instance. Love is real. We know when we have it, we know when we don't have it. But how do you fully comprehend it? How do you fully describe it? You can't put it in your hand. You can't put it in a box. You cannot completely contain love within our minds and hearts, yet it is very real to us. Well, that's what mystery is. God is totally transcendent, but at the same time, he is imminent. 
he reveals himself, yet there's so much about him that still is beyond us. And the Eastern churches give us what I think is their single greatest genius, being able to live in the both and, in the tension of paradox, where something can be this and that at the same time. As we mentioned, God is transcendent and imminent all at the same time. He's not either or. You don't try to figure it out. You can't. You just live in the intersection of those two seemingly opposite things. They're actually complementary things. And this provides, and one of the reasons why I think it's a great genius, the Eastern churches, this provides a great antidote for the way that we live in our modern day. We live in a system of dualisms. In We tend to swing between opposite poles, the sacred and the secular, spirit and matter, church and state, body and soul. Christ is crucified or he's resurrected, heaven and earth. There once was a time when it seemed like everything was a sin. Now nothing is a sin. Remember, we used to eat meat on Friday and it seemed so sinful if we did. Now, we hardly ever hear about not eating meat on Friday. So we tend to swing between poles in and out of the church in our culture. And the Eastern churches remind us, as one of their gifts, that life is lived in mystery where it's both and, not either or. The fifth great gift of the Eastern churches is the image it has of the human person. Now, it's not different than the Western church. It's just a matter of emphasis, and it's always important to remember the simplest answer to what's the difference between the Eastern churches and the Latin Rite Church, the way I put it is, it's simply a matter of emphasis, of perspective, not of fundamental belief. In the Eastern churches, the definition for the human person, the starting point for that is that we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are, in a sense, almost like an imperfect model of God himself, not in his essence, but in many ways, through our image and likeness to God. And grace perfects that image. It perfects that likeness. Now, because of sin, we lost the likeness to God, and we have tarnished the image. But it doesn't change our fundamental status, our fundamental being of image and likeness to God. As I mentioned, grace is a perfecting agent, God's energies that perfect our growth into the image likeness of God, despite our sin. There's a word for this in the West. They tend to use the word divinization. In the East, it's called theosis. And this is based on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, about being partakers of the divine nature. Imagine that. We, as human beings, the real definition for us, the only honest thing you can say about the human person is that we're made in the image likeness of God. We are to partake of the very divine nature of God himself, not become God himself in his essence, but to be so close and so like God as to actually partake of his nature. The only real thing we can say is that we are made in the image likeness of God. Everything else is an add-on, a foreign intrusion. We sometimes define ourselves in terms of our sin. We always say, well, what do you expect? I'm only human. But that's not correct. Whenever we do something glorious, we should say, what do you expect? I'm human. I may in the image and likeness of God. When we return, we're going to talk more about the 10 gifts of the Eastern churches, gifts to the whole church and to the world. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East's mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support in order to keep Light of the East on the air. You can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com that's byzantinecatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card with your help 
we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Saving Jews from the Holocaust in a wheelchair. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky was born in 1865 in western Ukraine. He was an aristocrat who gave up his wealth to become a monk. He then led the Greco-Catholic Church in Ukraine through two world wars. Exiled to Russia for three years during World War I, Sheptitsky never again enjoyed good health. From 1929 until his death in 1944, he worked from a wheelchair. From that wheelchair, Sheptitsky coordinated efforts to save hundreds of Jews during the Holocaust. Next time, we'll tell you more about the Archbishop, who at the height of the Holocaust wrote, A lack of love is the source of every hardship and misery. Love is the very substance of all of God's revelation. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. Welcome back to Light of the East. This is one of these days where we dust off a standard here at Light of the East, and it's something we need to keep before us because it really expresses the mission of this program. And that's the gifts of the church, East and West, in particular, the Eastern churches. So we went through the first five, and again, it's 10 gifts of the Eastern churches that I have picked out. We have many, many gifts, East and West, but I tend to focus on these 10. It's just sort of a handy way to learn about the Eastern churches. So we're on number six now. The sixth gift of the Eastern Church is its monasticism. In St. John Paul II's Apostolic Letter of 1995, Orient Lumen, for which we get the name of this program, because it means Light of the East, he says that monasticism is the reference point for all of the baptized. Monasticism reminds us of life as a spiritual warfare in which we need ascetical disciplines. We need to establish and set up and learn ascetical disciplines in our life. Things like fasting, saying no to the fallen side of our passions, to us to say yes to God, to be single focused on God. That's what monasticism is. Monasticism really is a radical living out of the same baptismal promise that we all take as baptized Christians. So the Eastern churches say that everybody is and must be, to a certain extent, a monk. You should have a monastic discipline in your lives. Even married people, believe it or not, especially married people. It's amazing what that element of the monastic can do for a marriage to keep it holy and happy and healthy. So monasticism is about dying to self and rising 
to others, and above all, to God. Let's face it, that's what Christianity is all about. And that's why St. John Paul II very wisely said monasticism is the reference point for all the baptized. And monasticism began in the East. It is still very much revered in the East, even though it's the Eastern churches that have a married clergy, a married priesthood. Yet at the same time, and there's that both and again, they revere and have given the world monasticism. All right, gift number seven, prayer. The way that we pray in the Eastern churches, and obviously in the Western church, there's prayer, of course. We're just talking about the specific way, the perspective of prayer in the Eastern church as one of its gifts. We pray in a way where we are praying our theology. This is especially true in the liturgical prayer of our church. We have what's called dogmatic hymns where a lot of our services are made up, and you've heard them over and over again many times in our program here at Light of the East. I often refer to them because they're so rich in meaning, and they're so illustrative of the soul of the Eastern churches. We have these dogmatic hymns where we pray something that is written in a very poetic way and uses paradox and a lot of beautiful literary techniques. We pray in such a way as to be expressing our belief, our theology. Many of these hymns become dogmatic exposés, and we do this to not only to praise God, but to also remind ourselves of what we believe, of what is good for us, of what God has done for us, and the great mystery of God and of salvation history. So our prayer is our theology. In fact, Evagris Pontikus, a famous monastic in the Eastern Church, once said that if you are a theologian, you will truly pray. If you truly pray, you will be a theologian. Because the way we pray is the way we believe, the way we believe, the way we pray. So prayer, liturgical prayer in the Eastern churches, is basically a pronouncement of dogma, of doctrine, of theology, but in a poetic way, in a prayerful way. So that what we believe becomes our prayer. What is in our head, what we know to be the truth of our faith, is also on our heart. And it comes out in our prayer, and we offer that to God. Our prayer is our theology. Number eight contemplation and the sense of the sacred. Now, this is very similar to the gift of the transcendence. Contemplation of nature and contemplation of God. The contemplation of nature just doesn't mean to sit and stare off into space or sort of space out in front of a tree or something. Contemplation means to actually see with that mystical sacramental vision the Eastern churches, and in fact, the whole church, East and West, is very much about seeing, seeing the invisible God made visible in the order of creation, most particularly in a human person. So contemplation means to be in a posture of prayerful receptivity to the real nature of something, to how it reveals God, how it speaks to us of God. The language of it, as St. John Paul II would say, the language of the body in the case of the human person, the language of the, of the body of any created thing, of nature, of a star in the sky, of the different laws of nature, of the rhythms of nature, how things work, that beautiful, beautiful order of things that reveals God. To contemplate that means to come to know God through an active contemplation. But there's also in inactive or passive contemplation, which is sometimes referred to as apophatic in the Eastern churches. That's one of our favorite words, apophatic. It means to contemplate God himself, but in a way that goes beyond all categories, all words. It's a way of knowing by 
not knowing. In the Eastern churches, whenever we pray, we pray a lot of times in the, the negative. In other words, we'll say that God is incomprehensible. He is infinite. He is immeasurable. He is ineffable. In other words, those are all negations, meaning you can't describe God. You can't measure God. You can't contain God. You can't fully behold God, even though to an extent we can, and we must, of course, because God has revealed himself to us as much as we can contain, as much as we can handle, actually, like the three apostles on Mount Tabor, Peter, James, and John, who were knocked on their face at the sight of Christ's divinity and the glory of his humanity that he revealed on Mount Tabor. They, they couldn't take it, overwhelm them, and knock them down. Although they loved it, it was overwhelming. So God has revealed himself to the degree that we can contain it. And of course, it's an ongoing process of understanding God. It's an infinite process. But he is so beyond us, so much greater than us, that the contemplation of God in the Eastern churches has more to do with a quiet, silent, negating, apophatic kind of awareness of God. With nature, we look at it for what it is, and it reveals God to us by its quality, its character, its rhythm, its life, and so on. With the contemplation of God, it's a deep mystical receptivity in our heart and our soul, just to the greatness of God, which is beyond all categories. Also with contemplation, we have the sense of sacred art, sacred chant, and sacred space, which are necessary for adequate worship. That's why Eastern churches are built a certain way. They must be built that way, must look that way, smell that way, feel that way. Everything about them goes together as one very comprehensive revelation or experience of God through those things, through the art, the chant, the prayer, the space itself, the architecture. It reminds me of something like Martha and Mary. Do you remember that story? Martha was very busy, and Mary just sat at the feet of Christ, contemplating him, being receptive to him. Martha became a little bit disturbed because she was busy trying to be hospitable, which is fine. She was okay. She was right. But Jesus told her, there's something beyond that. There's this contemplation of God that goes beyond all senses, all task-oriented things. It's just being in God's presence and knowing God intimately in a way that's beyond words, beyond categories, beyond descriptions, to know God deep in the soul. I call it the Martha and Mary dimension of the Eastern churches, their eighth gift, contemplation. Okay, number nine, liturgy. Liturgy for us is everything. We are a liturgical church. Participation in a transcendent reality is what liturgy is, and a heavenly reality Our liturgy is very sensate. It is, too, in the Latin rite as well. But in a particular way, it is in the Eastern churches. It's a very strong emphasis. We're very kinesthetic. We have sacred art, as you mentioned, sacred incense, sacred song and chant. In other words, we go through all of our five senses so that we see, taste, hear, touch something that reveals God to us. It puts us in touch with God. Liturgy is a way of not attending something for an obligation. It's a way of entering into the mystery of God, of participating in that moment of God come to earth, of the meaning point of the bridegroom God with his bride, the church. In liturgy, we get caught up in another reality, and the art, the sacred music, the incense, the architecture, the text, the gesture, everything helps us to get a sense of that other reality. We become transfigured in liturgy. Finally, the tenth gift of the Eastern churches 
is our Trinitarian basis. Everything for us is the Trinity. We love the number three. We do everything in threes. We do the sign of the cross in three. We hold our three fingers together and we do the sign of the cross. We'll do the sign of the cross sometimes three times. We bow three times. We kiss things three times. Three, three, three. We have three bars in our cross, three scalloped edges on the ends of the arms of the cross. We do everything in threes. We love threes. We use other numbers too. But three, because everything for us is the Trinity. That makes all the difference in the world that God is, yes, one God, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that makes all the difference in the world. As I mentioned, there are many gifts of the Eastern churches and many gifts of the Western church. And we benefit from each other's gifts. That's why we must make them known and share them. But these are at least 10 of some of my favorite gifts of the Eastern Churches. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Now you can hear podcasts of Light of the East and never miss a program. And if you wish, hear one again and again and again. How is this possible, you may ask? Just visit ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And click on the Light of the East tab. There you'll find Light of the East programs for listening or download and a link to a Light of the East iTunes subscription. Now you can hear Light of the East for the first time all over again, again, anytime you want. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. <laughs>